end of the book. Chapter 4, verse 13, to the end. Let us pray. Our God, what a joy we have this evening to conclude this story. Help us to see your grace, your love in Christ, we pray. Amen. Ruth 4, 13 through 22. Hear now the word of God. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And we come to the happy ending that we've all been waiting for. The book of Ruth is admittedly only four short chapters long. It can be read in perhaps a single afternoon. But it has all the elements needed to keep the reader engaged, wondering what's going to happen? Will there be closure to this story? Does the guy get the girl? Or rather, in this case, does the girl get the guy? Do they live happily ever after? We know that in the period of the judges, not everyone lived happily ever after. Even this morning, we came to a gruesome story, which still, as far as the sermon series goes, awaits resolution. But this book of Ruth is another big, heaping scoop of the grace of God to a people during this time. Remember, Ruth was written, or Ruth is recorded, uh, that the time in Ruth here is around um, Gideon, perhaps, or Ehud, one of the early judges. In Judges 19, we saw a man who had a concubine. He was an unworthy husband. And she, as we saw earlier as well, she was an unfaithful woman. And most of the people in that story led horrifyingly sinful lives. It was just one sin after another, just hitting us, getting rid of all of our southern sensibilities. But by contrast, our hearts rejoice this evening at the grace, at the hope, at the life of redemption in these final verses. The Lord redeems the unworthy through marriage and multiplication. Look again with me at verse 13, just the first part. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. So after Boaz crossed his T's and dotted his I's, they say their I do's. Boaz took her, and so she became his wife. He didn't take her against her will, but he did take her. She boldly came to him at night, you recall that? And in no uncertain terms, asking him to marry her. But it was he who took her. 
And it was she who was taken. Sometimes, well, all the time, grammar is important. And active voice and passive voice, very important. He was the one who took, and she was the one who was taken. So what does this mean but that the man takes the initiative to marry this woman? Could that be an overall principle for uh, any suitor for a woman? Sure. Does it have to be that way? No, not necessarily. But the man takes the initiative. He is the one who gets down on the knee, and he's the one who proposes marriage. Boaz was the kind of guy that a woman could settle down with. He was the kind of guy that a woman could be safe around, feel comfortable with. We're not told if he had his eyes on anyone else or if any of the single female gleaners also eyed Boaz, just wishing, just hoping, just praying that this man would be theirs. Some of you got that song. Good for you. A kind, wealthy, godly leader was hard to find back then, is hard to find even now. And maybe many eyes were on him. We remember that Ruth came to him to let him know that she was no longer in a period of mourning. She has passed that period, and she is now ready to be married. The other women, whether they were mourning or not, enter or entertain no space in Boaz's mind. No one was going to force a marriage with Boaz. At the same time, he had eyes only for Ruth. And so what does he do? He takes her to be his wife. Now, what takes place when he takes her to be his wife? She becomes his wife. It's not rocket science, to be sure. It's easy to overlook, but there it is. She's his. He initiated, he intended, and precisely because of Boaz's action... Ruth became his. She is no longer only the widow of Mahlon. She's no longer the poor young woman. She is no longer that damsel in distress in great need of redemption. She's none of these now. She's no longer like all of those other women who were gleaning, who depended upon the grace, the mercy of the manager of the field. No, she is now in a new category. Her identity is now partially tied up with her new husband, her beloved Boaz. Now she can say, I am his and he is mine. We don't need to wonder or worry about the nature of this relationship. This is a magnanimous marriage. Magnanimous comes from two Latin words, which means great and spirit. A great spirit, enlarged soul. We don't need to fear that this honeymoon phase was only a phase. To be sure, Boaz was not a perfect husband. Yet, interestingly, we don't see anywhere in this book his failings. No doubt he had them, but we don't see anything where he has sinned. He was above reproach. He was a godly man. He was a godly husband. And he entered into this marriage magnanimously, with a great spirit. He entered into this marriage with kindness leading the way, with love leading the way, with grace and mercy leading the way. And we know how the marriage would be then, based on how he had treated her before the wedding. Remember, he had no obligation to redeem her. 
That was for Mr. So-and-so. He lavished his gifts upon her. He dealt kindly with her. He was thoughtful to her. He was merciful to her. He was patient with her, loving towards her. We can imagine that when the Israelite virgins would lay their heads on their pillows, dreams of their own Boaz would fill their nights. When they daydreamed, no doubt they wondered when their Prince Boaz would come to them. But Ruth, she got the real Boaz. She got the real thing. And she was the better because of him. Chrysostom says, Never was anyone so much ennobled by marriage. In modern parlance, she married up. She benefited, benefited more than he did. We know that Boaz wanted to marry her. He had his eyes on her. It's the marriage will be for the mutual help of one another. But she's the one who gained more than he did. Yes, he gained a virtuous, godly woman, a Proverbs 31 wife, to be sure. But she was the one who was so much ennobled by this marriage. She was the one whose character and conduct were, were seen as exemplary through this marriage. She's the one who received more and more benefits of the relationship. She received, Boaz gave. And do we see then how Boaz again depicts these marital mercies of our Lord, that the great Redeemer marries the church? Christ our groom took the initiative. Christ our groom took the initiative. Now, most of our own marriage stories follow a typical pattern. The man tries to woo the woman. She reluctantly says, yes. Issues a stern warning like Sandy does Danny Zuko. You better shape up, because I need a man. He agrees, promises to be on his best behavior all the days of his life. And what does he do? He spends the rest of his life peeling off all the flower petals that he can get his hands on, as he counts all the ways that his wife loves so unworthy a man. Oh, how blessed he is to have this woman in his life. And there's nothing wrong with a man considering himself unworthy to be married to such excellent a woman. In fact, he ought to consider those things. He ought to consider how wonderful a wife he has. But this wasn't the story of Boaz and Ruth. That's not how things went down in Boaz and Ruth's day. If it were, then we would not have a picture of the gospel. But the fact that Ruth marries up shows us that there is actually a picture of the gospel. Christ takes the initiative. Christ takes all the initiative. And he had to take all the initiative because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Corpses don't take initiative. Our garments were not white, but they were ashen with the pollution of our sins. They were dark, they were black because of our marital union with the evil one. We had at the same time a big A sewed on our garment for all the adultery that we committed against God, who covenanted with us at creation. 
We didn't seek Christ. But he, our gracious groom from heaven, came, sought us, and bought us. Christ, our groom, takes the initiative, all the initiative. Christ, our groom, makes the marriage a reality. He neutralized the threat our sins posed to the wedding day. He kicked the evil one out of the ceremony. He forced Satan to peer through the temple's windows longingly, forever frustrated, always yearning for his old, defiled bride, just hoping that she would return to him one day. Always disappointed, for she will always be kept by her groom. He will never leave her nor forsake her. The Christ has made this real marriage a forever marriage, an eternal union. What Christ has joined together in holy matrimony, man will not, cannot, must not separate. Christ makes this marriage a reality. Christ, our groom, has made this marriage from his enlarged, gracious spirit. So Chrysostom's words of Ruth can surely be applied to the church as Christ's bride. Never was anyone so much ennobled by marriage. What does that mean? But that we married up. That we were blessed. That we receive and receive and receive. Because Christ gives and gives and gives. We are the better because of him. He is not the better because of us. He does not grow in Christ-likeness. He is perfectly Christ. He doesn't grow in anything because he is truly God, who is eternal and was perfect in all of his attributes. But we do grow. We do grow precisely because of him. We do grow in, in Christ-likeness. We do grow in patience and in love and kindness and joy and self-sacrifice because of him. From his magnanimous heart, Christ has dealt kindly to us. He has lavished his eternal gifts upon us. He has poured grace into our hearts, and he wakes us up, not with coffee in the morning, though that would be a good gift, but with new mercies every morning. He wakes us up with a reminder to read his word. Why? To check off a box? No. That we might hear him speak to us. He wakes us up with reminders for prayer. Why? So we can check off a box? No. So that we, his bride, can talk with our groom. And he wakes us up with reminders of of all the, the best men bridesmaids and the groomsmen and all that, reminding us that we have friends, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage this wedding, who encourage this marriage to keep on, to flourish in this marital relationship. And so we become people full of grace. We become people full of truth, of, of love, joy, patience, kindness, because of him. With each day in this relationship, we are becoming more and more without spot or wrinkle. And so we are the better because of him. 
such beautiful news for us, isn't it? But wait, there's more. The last part of verse 13. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. As he without fanfare reported the wedding, so now the narrator mentions a son. But this mention of a son is a significant fact in this whole book, and for more than one reason. Here's a predicament. Remember the factors that threaten the successful delivery of a boy. In fact, the conception of a child. Boaz himself, we saw, as an older man. You recall that he praised Ruth for not choosing a young guy. The text says nothing about any male barrenness, any impotence, or anything like that, but his age is a factor. Nature tells us, of course, that as men and women age, their childbearing years, they shorten, and then they become non-existent. But more than that was Ruth's empty womb. Remember, she was married to a man already. She was married to Mahlon for 10 years. And through 10 years of that marriage, had no children. She was, as far as she knew it, barren. We have then what seemed like an impossible scenario, an older man and a barren woman. But with the Lord, all things are possible. And so Ruth conceives and delivers a boy successfully. We fast forward nine months in that one verse. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And this son is born not just to Ruth, but significantly to Naomi, the redeemed. God did not forget about this once bitter woman who can now praise his name with great joy. And so he blesses this unworthy Israelite, Naomi, and this unworthy Moabitess, Ruth, with a boy, Obed. The boy Obed, whose name means servant, shall be used by God to serve redemption. He is not the Redeemer. But he is included in the long line of men, eventually culminating in the Redeemer. Perez, the son of Judah, which is where Boaz was from, and so from Judah. Then nine more names in the line of Judah are given, culminating in King David. From Perez to David, ten men are named to point to the perfection of the line, with Boaz being number seven of the ten. You can count both numbers 7 and 10, you, you know, in Scripture speak to a number of completion. Here then we have the perfect type of Redeemer, Boaz, and the perfect line of redemption. All this tells us that in the dark days of Judges, the chosen line is preserved. Praise be to God. Multiplication of redemption depends upon the Lord. What does the psalm say? But that unless the Lord builds it, they who build a house labor in vain. The building of the house depends upon the Lord. And we're not talking here about a physical edifice, physical building. We're talking about a household. We're talking about children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on and on. Unless the Lord builds it, you who build labor in vain. This line of redemption is sovereignly and indelibly drawn by the Lord of grace. 
Redemption has always been his forte. It has always been his prerogative. Redemption has always been his interests. Redemption, dear ones, has always been his joy. The Lord is joyful to redeem you. He doesn't begrudge the fact that he has to redeem you. He's not upset that he has to redeem you. He rejoices. He has eternally rejoiced that he will redeem you. And rejoices then in the fact that he redeemed you. And rejoices now that the Spirit is working in you that work of redemption. And he will see to its completion. You are in the house of God. Because by grace, God has effectually taken you in. Unless the Lord builds it, they who build the house labor in vain. The Lord works through ordinary means at the same time. Ordinary means to multiply his redeemed people. You know, Boaz and Ruth are no one special, really. They're just ordinary people who are loved by God. I guess that does make you special. But not because of them, not because of you, but because of God. You should feel special because God has loved you. The Lord works sovereignly, but that does not mean that he acts without means. Kingdom growth is from God alone. No one's going to take that from God, can't take that from God. But our God uses ordinary people to bring others into his kingdom. He also uses ordinary saints who love him. People who give birth to ordinary sons and daughters. Or less than ordinary. Or extraordinary sons and daughters. A bit weird sons and daughters. The Lord uses parents whose training up their children can be, see, can be perceived, earthly speaking, as humdrum. Nothing really to think about. Nothing really to reflect on. But in the eyes of God, not humdrum, but holy, a joy, a way to bring people to God, a way to bring people closer to God. Children of believers are called arrows in the quiver. Arrows, you could say, that are tipped with fire, that are shot into the city of darkness, setting ablaze the world with Pentecostal power. Praise be to God. That is the Lord's doing. And so what do we do? As the redeemed, what do we do? We, we bless. The redeemed bless the name of the Lord of redemption. Consider Naomi's blessedness. Do you see how God has lavished his love on this once hardened woman? She is now redeemed. She's now been set free. She's now been purchased. The Lord has not left her without a redeemer. God has been good to her. She didn't deserve this redemption, especially as we consider her own faithlessness in the early chapters. But God was more steadfast in his love than she was stubborn in her unbelief and bitterness. And he redeemed her. And he gave her a name, a renowned name. She shall be known by the name of Redeemer. No longer can she be called Mara. Remember, she wanted to be called Mara. 
bitter. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant. It's not who I am anymore. That's not my identity anymore. Call me Mara. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. No, no. No Mara. Naomi. And even more than that, she's tied to Boaz. And she's then tied to Obed. Which means she's then tied to Jesse and David and Jesus. So her name is a renowned name. And if we were to apply a New Testament name to an Old Testament figure, we could say she is Christian. She has the name of Christ upon her, which is, of course, the greatest name of all the names. And her life is restored. She has gone from bitterness to joyfulness. She has new vitality, even in her old age. Her life has been restored to her. She sees reason to go on. She has reason to go on living and to go on ministering, to go on serving, to go on rejoicing. Her age has been rejuvenated. That doesn't mean that the Lord has um, pulled back her years. She becomes less old as she gets older. No. But even as she matures, her older life is used to give life to this boy. What a grace from God that she became Obed's nurse. And what a grace from God that she has Ruth. In Ruth's sevenfold abundance. As Naomi thinks about Ruth, she will reflect on how God has blessed her more than if she had seven sons herself. Remember, that is what she had wanted. That's what she thought she needed. Now she she had Ruth, who turned out to be a greater blessing than a natural son. So what does one do who sees how she has been blessed? She blesses. The women in Naomi in this text, praise God for his fullness of redemption. What joy in a son. What joy in Ruth. What joy in Boaz. What joy in a favorable future. It's for us as well. The redeemed bless the Lord of redemption. We bless our God for redeeming us. We praise our God for setting us free because we were enslaved to darkness and sin. But he made that purchase with his own life, shedding his own blood for ours. He gave his life for us, redeemed us. We bless our God for naming us, renaming us, if you will. What a joy it is to be called Christian. Which doesn't mean little Christ, by the way. Sorry to burst your bubble if you thought that. Okay. Follower of Christ, one who belongs to Christ. Even slave to Christ. That's who we are. We've been given a name. What a joyous name, the greatest name to be joined to Jesus Christ. We bless our God for restoring our dead selves to life. In Christ. 
He has given us new life. He is to us a restorer of life, eternal life. There's nothing greater than having eternal life with our God. We bless our God for nourishing our souls each day for all eternity. And how does he do that? Christ ministers to our souls through his spirit, who is God himself. Again, what a grace we have that every day our souls can be strengthened in the Lord. And so we bless our God for his sevenfold abundance of redemption through the greater Boaz, Jesus the Christ, the only Redeemer of God's elect. Amen. Let's pray. Our joyful God, we thank you that you have rejoiced over us, us unworthy people. And so we rejoice because you have blessed us with the gift of redemption. We thank you that we have seen that gift time and again through this book. What a wonderful book of your grace. Transform us more and more by your grace, we pray. Amen.